This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, September 2nd, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Today's scripture reading is from Acts 9 verses 20 through 31. And for some days he, that would be Saul, was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And is he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But the disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is God's word. Praise be to God. Have a seat. I'm going to pray and we're going to get right into what the Lord has to say to us this morning. So if you bow with me. Heavenly Father, we praise You for Your goodness. We praise You for Your greatness, for Your grace, for Your generosity, for doing everything that we could not do in ourselves to reconcile us back to You, Lord. We look forward to the day when we dwell in Your presence away completely from the presence of sin. But that presence of sin in our life, though its penalty has been removed for those who are in Christ, even its power has been diminished, Lord. Its presence is still here. And we confess that we wander at times and we struggle still in this flesh with self-rule. Lord, we ask that you remind us of the joy of our salvation. Remind us of the joy of the invasion of Jesus' grace in our lives. That You have given us Your Spirit that battles against the flesh that we might live in ways that please You and bring us joy. Help us to do that. And this morning as we Look in Your Word, Lord, and we hear Your Word spoken to us. Holy Spirit, would You move me out of the way and do the things that only You can do. 
Only You can bring conviction to the heart. Only You can bring comfort to the heart. And we ask that You will do just that. Overwhelm us, Jesus, with Your grace this morning and reveal to us what it is we need to know and be reminded of and taught as Your people. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So, next week we're going to start a five-part series that is going to shake us all a little bit. And I'm excited for that. It's called, Am I Saved? Five parts. Join us next week. It's going to be an awesome series. A great series for self-examination, not for examination of others. But good self-examination. But this week we're ending, sort of, the book of Acts. There are six divisions in the book of Acts, and we will end the second division We'll return to it probably sometime next year, but for now we're closing out the story of Saul who will be known as Paul. So last week we spent some time reading about his conversion, the conversion of arguably the greatest leader or one of the greatest leaders of the early church. The man known as Paul the Apostle. At this point, he is going by the name Saul. Before he was Paul the Apostle, the man who preached the Gospel and planted churches and authored really about half of the New Testament, he was Saul the Pharisee, a man who persecuted the church violently. He didn't just blog about the church. He didn't just debate about the church. He attacked and ravaged the church and its followers. Before he was a martyr who loved and followed Jesus and was beheaded by Rome for just that, he was a murderer who hated Jesus and his followers. So he seized Christians, he jailed Christians, he supervised the execution of Christians. That is who Saul once was. And just that simple description reveals our God to be a God of new beginnings, a God of second chances, a God of complete do-overs. And God be praised because we all, for those who are in Christ, were once somebody else. Every disciple has what we'll call a prequel, right, to their testimony. You all know what a prequel is, I hope. Prequels in film are relatively new. Um, I don't know about literature necessarily, but they were popularized by the travesty, which is Star Wars 1 through 3. And I can say that because I'm a huge fan. But no one knew what prequels were, and now we all know, and we go, oh, yeah, prequels. A prequel is just a work that, that forms the backstory to a preceding story or work. And in terms of salvation, it's, it's a story of well, describing who we were that explains who we are now. That's a prequel. And without question, in everyone's story, there are events and experiences that naturally change who we are throughout life. And so I thought about some of my own. You know, I was once a dependent on my parents living at home, and then I became an independent. And we would hope that you 
become more responsible and you have obligations. And so there's a shift and a change in who we are and we once weren't like that. I was at one point single. And then I became married. And you would hope that you become less selfless because you're no longer just making decisions for yourself. And so there's a shift in who you are because now you're married and you're not just living for yourself. And then I was, you know, in school and then I began a career based off that education. And you begin to be established and maybe a little more productive and maybe you can start buying a couple things because you have a little more money. And so there's a shift and now I'm, you know, doing a vocation and a career and more responsibility. I was childless. And then we had a bunch of kids and you become much more long-suffering and enduring and impatient and angry and all kinds of things. But there's a shift, right? There's all these moments that like, man, I was this and then I was this and I was this and now I'm this. And all these changes that I described and many like them shape who we are. They don't define who we are. That's a problem we have. We're like, well, I am a teacher. I am a husband. I am. That's not who you are. But it certainly shapes who you are. This picture of who you are. And most of the things I named have uh, very natural and, and external explanations to them. Oh, I saw you were single. Now you're married. That makes sense. Why things are a little different. But for the Christian, when you shift from a non-believer to a believer, there's an internal experience that happens. An internal shift, and that actually affects all those other changes that I described. And this shift can't be explained by some natural thing. It can't be explained by some external thing. It's a life change that requires a Gospel explanation. Why are you so different now? And the only thing you can explain is this new heart that you've been given. Paul's prequel, or Saul's prequel, included many different identities and life-shaping experiences. Things that in many ways would define him or describe him. He was a proud Israelite. He was a good student. He was a self-righteous Pharisee. He was a murderous persecutor of the church. And beyond all those things, he was certainly broken, weak, rebellious, and lost. Walking the wrong direction according to his own way. But then... Jesus. And when Jesus invades someone's heart, I talked about that last week, like there is no Jesus invitation. There is a Jesus invasion. And when Jesus invaded his heart, everything changed. He became a different person who perceived all of life differently who thought differently, who felt differently, who spoke differently, who acted differently. Differently is not perfectly. Don't confuse those. But it was certainly going one direction and then heading the other. His new relationship with Jesus changed His relationship to everyone and to everything. And so I want to talk about that change Because the passage you read describes this change and what happened in his life after that change, at least the first short time. 
I want to talk about what characterize, like what really characterizes a change in relationship to Jesus. And in what ways does that change relationship change our relationship with the world? Does it at all? And lastly, how do we grow in that relationship to Jesus? So if you look at verse 20, you see what he does immediately after his baptism. Having spent time with the disciples, it says, he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and says, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But says Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So, if we want to take Paul as somewhat of an um, example, we ask what characterizes a change in our relationship to Jesus? Because prior to this time, he had a very different one. So immediately following his conversion, Saul is preaching Jesus in the synagogues. These would be the churches, the community centers, if you will, for the Jews. Ironically, Saul had arrived in Damascus with letters from the high priest to the local synagogues. That's what the beginning of Acts 9 says. He was supposed to go to the synagogues. He had already intended to be there. He had a mission to begin there, and yet the message that he shows up with is very different than what he had planned to share. Before his conversion, Saul would have said, Jesus is the son of a carpenter and a liar. And now Saul shows up and teaches, Jesus is the son of God and Lord. It's a little different. Very different. It's important to understand how the Jews would have understood this term, this title, son of God, what they would have meant or what Paul would have meant and what they would have understood. There are several Old Testament passages like Psalm 2 and certainly others that link Son of God, that phrase, with King of Israel. And those are both linked as titles for the Messiah, the anointed, promised Savior. In the New Testament, when Nathaniel, who is one of Jesus' disciples, comes to Jesus... They have an exchange, and after Jesus basically, in kind of a very charismatic way, so to speak, says, I saw you under this tree, and he's like, what? That's all Nathaniel needed to be convinced of this. Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. You are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. So, When Saul shows up in the synagogues, he is preaching that Jesus is the unique promised Son of God and Messiah they've been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years. And Saul's experience, as I said, with meeting Jesus on the street isn't with crucified Jesus. It isn't even necessarily with resurrected Jesus as much as it's with glorified Jesus who is on His throne. So, As Saul shows up and says, Jesus is the Son of God, in a very real way, they would have heard that as, Jesus is the King. He is the King of all. Lord of all. 
That's very different than how Saul intended to see him or speak about him. There's a world of difference between Jesus as teacher, Jesus as example, Jesus as prophet, even the Muslims will say that, and Jesus as King of all. I would even suggest that there is an important distinction between declaring Jesus as Savior and Jesus as King. The most important question I believe that any human must answer before they die is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? There will be many answers to that question should you ask many different people. It was the question Jesus asked His own disciple. Who do they say I am? Who do you say I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Saul did more than just say Jesus was King. What we begin to see is that the Lordship of Jesus, the rule of Jesus, characterized how He thought, it governed how He felt, it directed how He acted, because he viewed himself as one under new authority. Never forget, he came to the synagogue with letters of authority to persecute, punish, imprison, kill Christians. And now he is declaring Jesus as king. He is under new authority. Now, if you didn't know, mankind, that'd be everyone, has an authority problem that began in the Garden of Eden. If you want to... You know, yes, the, the huge problem in the world is not a lack of education or bad politics. It's the hearts of men who are basically rejecting the authority of God in their lives. Our first parent's sin was characterized by rejection of God's Word. God said, don't do this. And the tendency for us is to go, well, it was just fruit. What's the big deal? It didn't matter if they were told, look, Adam, never, ever, ever pick your nose, for on the day you do, you will die. It didn't matter what it was. What mattered is that God said it. It's hugely important. And so by rejecting what God had said, rejecting God's Word, they rebelled against God's authority. They gave into the temptation, which was, I'm going to be like God. I'm going to rule my own life. I'm going to decide for myself what is right and what is wrong. Self-rule is at the core of man's sin. I want to do what I want to do. And since that faithful day, there has been more people than less who have followed a way that seems right, and in the end, it's led to death. We like our own way. We like to think our own way. We like to go our own way. And we don't reject authority as much as it's probably better described as exchanging for the authority of another. We live under some version of our own authority, whether it be our own opinions, our own feelings, our own experiences. We have an authority problem. 
that whenever the desires of our God-given authorities in our lives conflict with our desires, what they want conflicts with what we want, we end up experiencing misery, at least in those relationships, because we refuse to believe that that authority is actually acting in love, in wisdom, or both. It must be wanting just to be some kind of controlling force to rob me of joy. I would argue that our own struggle with God's rule is evident in our struggle, whether it be struggle with the authorities that God has given us like parents, teachers, leaders in the community. That's revealing a struggle we have with God. Now, we don't like authority because we don't trust authority. We trust ourselves more than the authority that God has given us in our lives and God Himself. And when it comes to Jesus, here's this, what it leads us to do. And maybe this is not you, or maybe you've never thought of it this way. But as you examine your life and, and how it unfolds and why you do what you do and why you don't do what you don't do, I think many of us have come to Christ and proclaimed Jesus as Savior with our mouths, and then we proclaim ourselves as King with our lives. Right? We, oh, Jesus is my Savior. He was saved by grace. And then we do whatever the heck we want. Because we proclaim Jesus not as King, just Savior. Lord, eh, I like to be Lord of my own life. Now, ironically, if you look at Saul, in his case, his proclamation of Jesus as king is directly related to his understanding of Jesus as Savior. Okay, catch that? His declaration of Jesus as king comes from his understanding that Jesus is Savior. He doesn't separate them, they go together. His king died for him. An enemy, the worst of all enemies in his own words, that he might become a son. Saul understood that Jesus was murdered for him who was a murderer. So, only the good news of the Gospel, God's amazing grace, could, under, could explain this transformation that Saul has. Understanding that the Son of God, knowing full well everything He had done, everything He had thought, every evil intention of His heart and every evil action He would ever commit, died for Him. His transformation was characterized not merely by acknowledgement of Jesus as Savior, but primarily by allegiance to Jesus as King. You know what What characterizes the relationship with Jesus? Anyone can say Jesus is Savior. But no one will say Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. That's what characterizes it. But it goes further, right? That relationship we have with Jesus changes a lot of other relationships. And we don't even have to try to change those relationships. When you answer the question of who is Jesus, and that answer is the resurrected God and King, 
You have to know that that kind of allegiance has its cost. At his conversion, Saul is told that he is going to suffer greatly in service to the king. He is just told that. And this isn't penance for some earlier life. You are so bad that I'm going to make your future life with me bad to, to pay the price for all the bad stuff. You, that's not what's going on. The suffering that we experience in our allegiance to Christ is the cost of following Jesus in this world. In Luke 14, verse 26 and 27, Jesus Himself said this, which is one of those verses that we kind of read quickly through. It says, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after Me cannot be My disciple. Now can you imagine Jesus like, yeah, if you don't this, cannot be my disciple. Cannot be my disciple. Sorry, cannot be my disciple. I mean, it's like, whoa, I thought it was just like, come on, oh, come to me, everyone. Everyone who, who needs love, come to me. He draws some lines and says, look, there's a cost to following me. And I don't believe that as you read that text, which is difficult, that he's commanding us to hate our family members, but he is revealing very much about how he views the uniqueness of our relationship to him and the contrast of our relationship to him and others. And taking up your cross, as he says several times, is not merely just doing something hard. It is identifying with a man who was willingly humiliated and hurt for his allegiance to God. That's what taking up the cross is. It's exposing yourself to that kind of pain in the name of God. Now, even though everyone was amazed at Saul's conversion, not everyone was excited about it. There were many who we read in Acts chapter 9 wanted to murder the former murderer. Things have been turned around a little bit. It's because our relationship with Jesus changes our relationship to the world. An invasion by Jesus, I believe, leads to allegiance to Jesus. And allegiance to Jesus is going to lead to opposition in the world. The proclamation of Jesus as King is not this. Jesus is King for me. That is the way many Christians function because that's how the world functions. Well, it's true for you, but it may not be true for me. When you declare Jesus as King, you are not saying Jesus is King for me if you declare Jesus as King. It is the bold and unpopular belief that every knee shall bow to Jesus one day, and so every knee should bow to Jesus today. That's what you're saying. And in saying that, unavoidably and somewhat understandably, it's going to rub people a little wrong. 
That's the kind of proclamation that generates hostility, especially in a world that has a problem with authority. Because you've just declared, there's an authority, and his name is Jesus. You can't just live the way you want. You can't just do what you want. Now, this Jesus died on the cross for you. This Jesus gave everything He could to love you. And now, He expects you to live for Him who died. Luke says in Acts that when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill Him. Verse 24, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates night and day in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening of the wall, lowering him in a basket. Paul recounts this same experience several different times in Acts as well as the letter of Galatians. And in that he says, actually there's an official order from the leader of the city looking for Paul. The entire city is against him. It's not just some little plot there. It's like a citywide plot. and They're waiting to see if he escapes. And if he tries to escape, they're going to kill him. If you read the testimony in Galatians 1, which I won't this morning, Saul likely actually left Damascus at some point and then went into Arabia. And then he returned to Damascus again only to escape here. And so, it's, scholars disagree, but the many days is probably many, at least a couple years of time that he has spent preaching throughout Arabia and in Damascus. So Saul's been preaching for a long time in a lot of places. He is not the kind of person that Jesus describes in his parable of the soils, right? That like gets really excited and then when persecution comes, they fall away. That's not Paul. In fact, the very opposite happens with him. The greater the persecution, the greater the passion. The greater the passion, the greater the persecution. It all works together. People don't like Paul. Saul and the disciples of Jesus, all who are in Christ, are constantly living as those governed by the authority of one kingdom while they live as ambassadors in another. And those two kingdoms are at war. Christians are those who live under the authority of one kingdom while they're living in another kingdom. And those kingdoms are at war. They don't like each other. This is why Jesus gives warnings that, again, we miss. John 15, verse 18 telling His disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted Me, they will also persecute you. Jesus also prayed in John 17. Verses 14 to 17, but you can read the whole prayer. It says, I have given them your word, speaking about his disciples as he prays to God on their behalf. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
Sanctify them in truth. Set them apart in truth. Guard them, if you will, in truth. Your Word is truth. As you sent Me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So, simple question. If this is your experience, or as you step back and you see this, why does the world hate Christians? Well, I don't think the world hates Christians. Well, maybe we're not proclaiming Jesus as King and living as such. Because when Jesus is Savior and Lord, Jesus says, they ain't going to like you. So the question is, well, why? why is that? Well, there are probably lots of answers to that question. Some right, some wrong. But insofar as we live like Jesus, I think we should expect to experience life like Jesus. So, according to Jesus, the world hated Him. Certainly not all the time and not every single person. But enough at one time to murder a man who was sinless. So, why did the world hate Jesus? Well, think about this. So, when we declare Jesus King, hostility may be created. Why? Because like Jesus, the first thing He did, He made exclusive claims. He said, there's only one way to God. That's not very popular in our diverse multiplicity culture. Nope, there's one way to God, which means that way, 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 that way is all wrong. Those are all paths to hell. The only one to Jesus or to God is Jesus. Jesus said that. Second, he claimed authority. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Third, he identified our problems very honestly. The problem is not your upbringing. The problem is not all the bad things that have happened to you in life. The problem is not that you don't have enough money, your social status is low, that you don't, you're not educated enough. He said the problem is your sinful hearts. The problem is your sin. Fourth thing, he refused to live like the world and he lived according to God's Word just as he had hoped and prayed that his disciples would in distinguishing themselves in the world. Fifth, he made claims publicly and not privately. There were no hidden messages or secret handshakes. Jesus was very bold. Sixth, he declared every single person to be a sinner whether you were religious or irreligious. He said, everyone is bad, no one is good. And then he said, above all things, no single sinner could ever save themselves through their own goodness. And they needed to put their faith in Him. Now, collectively, those are claims that are going to upset a lot of people. There's only one way to God. Jesus is the authority. You're all sinners. You are saved by grace. And we think like when you say, oh, saved by grace. People will love to hear that. Well, grace implies you're a sinner who cannot save yourself. And you need someone to do all the work for you. Hostility will come insofar as we actually live like Jesus and talk like Jesus 
and proclaim the same things about Jesus that he proclaimed about himself because Jesus is called the light. And men are described as loving the darkness and hating the light. They hated Jesus because he exposed them, everyone, religious or irreligious. Not merely by what he said, but by how he lived. I mean, the man died on the cross forgiving those who were killing him. Saying that they were blind and didn't know what they were doing. Tim Chalice, who's an author and writer, said this, Christian, you should expect to be hated today for the same reasons. Your goodness unmasks the badness of unbelievers around you. Your light illumines their darkness. Your truth exposes their error. Your holiness declares their depravity. Your life stands in judgment of them. It convicts them of their guilt. It shows them who God expects them to be. And all this is true, even though you are so far from perfect. And even though so much of the old man remains. The world hates Christians because of who we love and who we obey. And I would argue they only know you love Him if you endeavor to live in obedience to Him. Jesus has to be King. And so Paul is hunted, and yet he escapes through disciples that he has made in the time he has spent there. And as we hear the last part of this section of this text, we will, how, do, how do we endure that hostility? How do, we, how do we grow in that relationship despite all the things that are stacked against us? Well, I would argue that we should not and cannot do life of faith alone. We need help. Verse 26 says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, which makes sense. They didn't believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So, he describes, Barnabas describes the experience that he had in Damascus. He was not warmly received. Saul, when he showed up, no one believed that he was actually a true disciple of Christ, even after several years. But one man, one man Joseph is his actual name, seeks out Saul to bring him to the apostles and to testify to the legitimacy of his faith. The apostles call Joseph Barnabas. We've learned that in Acts chapter 4. And that meant son of encouragement. And Barnabas has kind of become, you know, that idea of people who are encouraging and stand in the gap, if you will. Well, for the next several years, Barnabas is going to walk with Saul as his faith and his mission matures. And as you survey the book of Acts, you will see it talks a lot, at least in the next few chapters, about Barnabas and Saul in that order. In chapter 11, if you read it, you'll see it says Barnabas and Saul. In chapter 12, it says Barnabas and Saul. In chapter 13, it says Barnabas and Saul. And then halfway through the chapter, it says Paul and Barnabas. And even though Paul would accomplish much more tangibly than Barnabas 
would, we learn that Paul spent much time learning from Barnabas, even being led by Barnabas for a time. And eventually, Paul and Barnabas would separate. And after that, you'd read about Paul and Timothy, or Paul and Titus, or Paul and Silas. We grow in our relationship together, is the point. That we need help, we need one another. God does not save us alone, but together. God does not send us alone, but together. God does not grow us alone, but together. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul writes that we grow into the full measure of Christ-like maturity through relationship with other members of the body. He writes that in Ephesians 4. He says we mature to the fullness of manhood in Christ as we are being built up together. We cannot disciple ourselves. And I would propose that any and all attempts at a self-reliant faith will result in a self-deceived faith. As we see with Saul and Barnabas, we need someone to stand with us. We need someone to stand with us sometimes. To speak for us and to speak to us. To stand with us. And sometimes as we see Saul and the apostles, they send him home when it gets the, the heat gets too hot. And I would argue that we also need others to help us know when it's time to run. And when it's time to go left or right. If the book of Acts in the city of Ephesus is any indication, my guess is Paul fought that a little bit. He was the guy arguing to go into the middle of the riot and preach Jesus. And the apostles were like, dude, it's a little hot. Why don't you go to your own hometown for a while? We need people like that in our lives to speak truth to us. There are no one-man Rambo armies in the economy of God. All right, we, for those, like, there's some like, Rambo, who's that? You know what I'm talking about, people, right? Like the one-man army could do it all, needs nobody. That's not how the Christian faith works. We are in a battle, and we need one another in that battle at different times. And sometimes we need a Barnabas. And sometimes we need to be a Barnabas. Now, the end of our passage um, this morning is a verse that ends the second section of the book of Acts. So there's six sections. And we see a verse here at the last verse, verse 31, that is kind of a summary verse, um, kind of summarizing the, what has happened and then kind of declaring the pattern of what happens next. And I believe it provides actually a pretty good summary of all that I've tried to say this morning. Verse 31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So the church grew. And every time you see a marker like that, it says the church grew and the church multiplied. And we've seen this happen twice. We see the church has expanded beyond Jerusalem. 
not just the church of Jerusalem, it's now a church over a region. Despite the religious and the irreligious world who are against the disciples, and again, everyone is against them, Jesus still saved more people. Jesus still made more disciples. Jesus still baptized and grew His church. And as promised, the kingdom of God on earth reclaimed ground and the gates of hell did not have a chance against it. We exist as a church today because that battle waged up to this point. That it grew stronger. And disciples made disciples who made disciples who made disciples for thousands of years to where we are preaching the exact same Gospel that was preached by a man like Paul. And the question is, how did it grow stronger? How was it built? How did the church grow? Now, I, I wouldn't say do this, but if you ever do a Google search for church growth, it's going to reveal some interesting articles. Endless lists of strategies and methods to grow your attendance and reach your community. Proven. Seven steps. Proven. I hate all those things. Don't send them to me. I won't read them. And I won't read them because I have learned um, over several years that gathering a crowd is not the same as building up a church. So how do you really grow a kingdom community? How, how, how do we as individuals grow stronger in our faith? Because we talk about church growth, it's not just size, it's also depth. We could ask the same questions about me as a Christian husband or a Christian father. Or a Christ how do I grow? How am I built up? How do I look different, healthier, better, stronger next year than I did this year? How do we experience more peace and, and more joy in my walk tomorrow than I am today? Well, I think this verse reveals a couple things and it really echoes what I've said this morning. First, the people grew, I believe, insofar as they were walking in the fear of the Lord. That's what it says. Walking in the fear of the Lord. It multiplied. That's not the number one growth strategy that you'll probably find on that Google search. I'm not sure that's the number one bit of advice someone would give you if you asked, how do I grow as a spiritual leader of my home? Everything begins with walking in the fear of the Lord. Everything begins with authority in your life. Doing what God commands you to do. If you are struggling in any way, if we are struggling as a church, the first question should be, am I fearing the Lord? Because fear is attached to wisdom. Am I fearing the Lord or am I ruling my own life? Am I fearing the Lord or am I declaring what is right and wrong based off my feelings, my experiences, my intellect? Am I making decisions based off of what I want to do or what makes sense to me or am I opening God's Word and seeking His face? We cannot expect to experience peace or strength or growth if we're not living under the Lordship of Jesus and we are living under the Lordship of self. Because we are easily deceived. Self-deceived. And so, to put it very plainly, for those who declare that they believe in Jesus, 
Jesus is either king or he is nobody. Jesus is either king in your life or he's nobody. And Jesus either rules everything or he rules nothing. And so you should consider, we should all evaluate, what are, who's Jesus and what are the things perhaps I've withheld from his rule? What are the things I think, well, are insignificant? Or maybe really important to me, more important than submitting them to Jesus? Jesus is king or he's nobody, he rules everything or nothing. But secondly, we see the people grew insofar as they were walking, what? In the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The word comfort can also be just understood as encouragement or, or help. The Spirit is called the helper, right? They're walking in the help of the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean? Well, God gives us these commands. And let's be honest, in our flesh, they're hard to obey. I won't ask for hands, but I doubt that every single one of you, you know, I got obedience down. That's easy. I'm done with sin. It's a struggle. And so he gives us his spirit. And why is his spirit there? To help us obey his commands. There's no command he doesn't give us that he doesn't also provide the power to obey it. That's grace. And the Holy Spirit, without doubt, teaches through His Word primarily. But I would also argue that that Word often comes through the mouths and the hands of His people. I would argue, because as you see the story of the church unfold, the Holy Spirit's constantly there, constantly there, constantly there in the church, in the gathering of God's people. The book of Hebrews reminds us to not neglect the gathering of the people. Why? So we can stir one another on towards good works. We need each other. You can't live life alone. And so the question is, who, who are you helping? Like discipleship is actually pretty basic. You know what it is? I'm going to follow Jesus. You follow me as I follow Jesus. So who are you helping do that? And who is helping you? Whose example are you following as they follow Jesus? And who is following you? Because God intends for us to grow together, to speak truth to one another, to give encouragement to one another, to stir one another on towards good works. And if you are isolating yourself away from community, know that you are isolating yourself away from God and His ways. Because that's how He's built it. Our series has been called Witness. And I would end with this. Our greatest witness will never be our preaching or our programs or our Sunday morning production. I wouldn't call it a production, but hopefully you get my meaning. It will be our people. People fearing God and loving one another. People fearing God and loving one another. Let's pray.